Masechet Chagiga, page 16. Uh, we are going to complete the story of the four who entered Pardes and also begin the next Mishnah, a very famous, important Mishnah, about a long-standing machloket regarding semicha, putting one hand, one's hands on the animal. Uh, but first, we complete the story, finally, with Rabbi Akiva, Allah b'shalom v'yadad b'shalom. He was able to enter into Pardes uh, in peace and also come out in peace. He did not die. He would not, not go crazy or become a heretic. He was able to handle the experience just fine. Regarding Shira Shirim, parable to Hashem and Bnei Israel, uh, saying, draw me, we will run after you. The king has brought me into his chamber. This is referring to the king as Hashem who brought Rabbi Akiva into his inner chamber, and he was able to uh, be there and be only uplifted by the experience and not harmed. Yet even Rabbi Akiva, the angels uh, protecting, tried to push him out. They're the bodyguards and say, you don't belong in here. But HaKadosh Baruch told the angels, leave him alone, he's okay. He is permitted to serve my glory. Rabbi Akiva was on a special level. Now we want to know, what did Rabbi Akiva, how did he know to distinguish between the angels, other divine beings, and Hashem himself? Uh, so he was careful not to stare, not to look. Uh, at what, what was not appropriate, unlike uh, others who saw something and they misunderstood what they saw, they looked the wrong way. How did Be'akiba know? We're going to see a few uh, sources, four of them. Uh, pasuk from of the beginning of Ezotah Beracha, that Hashem came from uh, the holy myriads, like in about tens of thousands. So this uh, literally means Hashem came, you know, here to uh, this, uh, to uh, a special place. Uh, but the word ve'ata also sounds like ot, meaning a sign or symbol. Otu that although there are tens of thousands of angels, there is ot. Hashem has a sign that is distinguishing him, 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 that he is unique among the angels. And so Rabbi Akiva knew to look out for that sign and not confuse uh, the angels with the divine uh, uh, creator himself. Or similarly, uh, says Dagul, my, my beloved is, is Dagul, preeminent among the myriads. So Dugma, he is exemplary, different from above the myriad of angels. Hashem is different in the Bi Akivanu to look out for that difference. So reading Hashem's name, as we do, uh, the Lashon Adnut, that Hashem is the master among the hosts. Yeah, there's a big host, there's a lot of army of angels, but Hashem is the master above them all and different. Uh, so famous pasuk from 
Eliyahu Navi says, uh, right, Hashem, he, he, saw, he saw, he heard, a, he saw wind, and he saw Hashem is not in the wind, and then an earthquake, you might, you know, most people would think, oh, a big earthquake, that's a, a manifestation of God, no, not, not there either, and not in the fire, but rather, after all that was a thin, small voice, and that was Hashem passing by, and so unlike uh, 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 most people who would would think that Hashem is in the in the great commotion, um, but no, rather all that's just an uh, introduction uh, to that's just the, the myriads of other angels and forces and the natural uh, um, occurrences. But Hashem is actually uh, the that's that that uh, 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 that voice um, that passes afterwards in the quiet, you know, kind of quiet of meditation, uh, when one can experience that divine. Rabbi Akiva knew this, and so therefore kept that in mind. It was able to uh, not trespass beyond where he was not permitted to go. So now, since we've been talking a lot about angels, we want to tell you something about the angels. And the angels are different from Shedim. Shedim meaning demons. Okay, demons were a widespread belief in Persia. Very, very popular. It explained a lot of things like, you know, why do... You know, like the things that we would ascribe, uh, if you just change demons to bacteria or virus, right? It makes a lot of sense. This is a little forces that we can't see, but that cause damage in the world. And so there are uh, six, six things mentioned regarding Shadim. In the three ways, uh, demons are like angels. In three ways, demons are actually like human beings. Uh, they have, uh, demons have angels, just like, have wings just like angels do. And they can use them to fly from one end of the earth to the other quickly, just like angels do. And demons know what's going to happen in the future, just like angels do. We pause for a second and say, Is that really true? That angels and or and demons know the future? How do they know? They don't know themselves. Instead, it's the angels. They have access to insider information, literally inside, beyond the curtain in God's um, uh, private realm. So sometimes they go and uh, they eavesdrop and they listen in and they can hear about what's going to happen in the future uh, from behind the curtain. And then they tell each other and they, um, uh, so that's how they know, but they don't, they don't have direct knowledge for it. And the demons are similar to humans in three ways. They eat and drink. Uh, that would explain why, you know, food goes bad and water evaporates. And they multiply like human beings. And they also die. Demons aren't around all the time. They, uh, they live and they die. So they're some kind of in-between status. Now, that, that you mentioned uh, three traits of human beings, oh, let's go to that. There are six traits that human beings have. In three ways, human beings are like angels. But in three ways, humans are the same as animals. Human beings have knowledge, we have rationality, we can think about uh, things beyond us, just like angels do. And we walk upright on two feet, just like uh, angels are upright. 
unlike uh, unlike animals that go on four and we can speak uh, the holy tongue like uh, the angels do of course not all human beings speak Hebrew speak lots of languages but the angels speak Hebrew so the point is that just like the angels speak they speak Hebrew human beings also speak language whatever language they happen to speak. Animals do not have uh, uh, language. But human beings are also like animals in three ways uh, in that we eat and drink like animals do, and we multiply like animals do, and we uh, go to the bathroom uh, like animals do. And so therefore, you know, it's our choice to decide which one we're going to emphasize. Are we going to uh, reduce our higher faculties and be like animals or elevate our animal uh, side and make everything more holy and more special and be more like angels. Now, going back to the Mishnah, uh, we already uh, discussed somewhat the four questions, four forbidden questions, but now we're going to discuss further. I understand three of the questions that you should not probe uh, deeply beyond their understanding regarding what is above and what is below and what is after. Um, that's fine um, because uh, this uh, these are things that are still ongoing. Uh, but lifanim, what happened before, what's wrong with that? Whatever happened, happened already. You know, so not, you're not changing anything. It's like, you know, it's past history. So why can't we figure out and try to think about what happened before? It's not affecting anything in the future. So to answer this, we can explain it by a parable of a king who tells his servants, go and build me a palace over there where that garbage dump is, right? You gotta, gotta move away the garbage, clean it up, and I, that's where I want the palace. So they go and, and make it. Now, if people are going to pass by and say, oh, let's go to the garbage dump, they're going to continue to call it a garbage dump. The king is not happy about that. So even though this is past history, but now that it's all built and nice, you're going to change the name. You don't want to call it that name anymore. There's one uh, Bet Knesset uh, nearby that's built on a gas station. You wouldn't want people to say, well, let's go to the gas station synagogue, right? That's it. It's not a gas station anymore. Now you change the name. What's the Nimshal? The Nimshal is that the world first, uh, uh, but way before, was Tohu, Vabohu, Choshech, all chaos, a garbage dump uh, originally, you know, and we discussed a little bit, but we think about more about why, right? Why does Hashem create chaos only to make order out of, out of it? Was there chaos before that? Hashem create the chaos? Okay, those are, those are questions that are beyond our understanding. And so the point is, don't ask because it's, it's, uh, it's not a nice, it's not respectful. The world is beautiful. God created everything orderly as it should be, and therefore appreciate the world as is uh, and uh, don't go back and say, what was before? What were all the other worlds that didn't work out, right? And why, why didn't they work out? Uh, so there's no, it's not respectful to uh, talk about the past um, that uh, when it used to be a garbage dump. Okay, very interesting. The Mishnah mentioned that anyone who doesn't care about the honor of his creator and uh, by asking questions that are beyond him and, you know, just trying to figure out uh, underneath what the flaws are in creation. Um, better that that person had never come. Better if he has 
problems about creation, better that he not be created. Mida keneged mida. Mahi, what is this referring to? To be aba amad. Zemistakel bakeshet. It's referring to someone who uh, stares at the rainbow. Now, of course, you can look at a rainbow, and we even have to because there's a bracha. You see a rainbow, you say the bracha. But the point is staring at it, and that would like come to worship it as if the rainbow. Is uh, is you know a, 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 well it is a sign right and so as you know treating it too much like a divinity and so this is this would be improper. Rav Yosef Amad another opinion says it's someone who um, violates uh, a, a transgression in hiding. So in hiding, he says, ah, God, God can't see me, right? I'm inside. I closed the shades. Cheskel says that the appearance of a rainbow is similar to the appearance of brightness. When he saw this vision of, of, of God himself, he compared it to a rainbow. And so therefore, someone looks at the rainbow and says, oh, that's what, that's what God looks like. And he's staring at it, uh, thinking that this is what God looks like. He's reducing God. This is something that is, uh, that is uh, physical, appears in the sky, and will therefore uh, misunderstand uh, and go beyond his, uh, try to go beyond his comprehension, and that would be disrespectful, because you're here, kibot Hashem. So therefore, don't do that. Uh, but of course, to appreciate the rainbow and its symbolism and say the bracha, that of course is good. Uh, and the other opinion said, uh, it's uh, someone who sins in private. And this follows Bizchak, who says, anyone who violates a sin in hiding, it's like he's pushing over God's feet. He's like, move over, God. I want I want to be here. Uh, I want to sit here. How so? Because it said the Pasuk in Yeshaya says the heavens are God's throne and the earth is his footstool. So God's feet are around here. If Hashem says, oh, I don't want Hashem to see me, right? I'm going to go in private. Hashem is not over here. He doesn't see. So it's as if he is this, he is disrespecting uh, God, comparing him, just saying, ah, get out of here. This is uh, um, so, so he's pushing over God's feet. And so that is disrespectful to think that. God doesn't know just because, you know, you're in a, in a basement bunker that he can't see there. Okay, Ini. Now we have a challenge to this statement that Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi Yitzchak says, you know, it's worse to sin in private. But we have another statement that says the opposite. The elder said, if a person realizes that his desire, his inclination is overcoming him and he can't, he can't hold it back. He just, he needs to eat a cheeseburger. It's, he's going crazy over it and there's no way he can uh, control himself. So then he shares advice. Go to a place where nobody, he should go to a place where nobody recognizes him and dress all in black, showing his, how he's uh, uh, ashamed that he's come to such a state and wrap himself in, in black like a mourner, uh, embarrassed, shamed, and then do, do what you need to do. Uh, there because it's impossible for him not to do it at, 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 at all. So at least to do it there in private and do not uh, uh, violate, do not desecrate God's name in public. Don't do it here in the city where everybody sees and they're going to say, oh, look at that. Um, so instead, 
go ahead and do it in the middle of nowhere in private. So this is the opposite because this advice says, if you need to sin, do it in private. Over here it says, if you're sinning in private, it's even worse. You're at, not only are you sinning, you're, you're disrespecting God to say, oh, he doesn't know, see? And so we answer, the first statement is when a person can, is capable of overcoming his inclination. And he, you know, he could, he's, he's totally fine not eating the cheeseburger, but he wants to eat it. And he goes in private to say, Ah, see, now God won't see. So that is disrespectful. That's a terrible thing to do. But the second case is someone who, no, he doesn't want to do it, but he's overcome and he cannot control his desire. So he's not going in private because he thinks God doesn't see. He knows God sees everywhere, but rather he doesn't want, it's bad enough that God knows. He doesn't want to shame God, desecrate God's name in public. So he's only going in private, not to publicize the sin, but not because um, he thinks God doesn't see. And so the reason behind it is completely different. And so actually those two statements can be reconciled with each other. Was the in Meturgeman, that's the, the human loudspeaker of Resh Lakish. And you see that even these Meturgemanim, they weren't just repeating word for word, they were uh, learned people themselves. Uh, especially to be for Resh Lakish, you have to understand everything Resh Lakish says and uh, repeat it over. You know, in Yeshiva, a lot of times the students, we didn't understand what the Rosh Yeshiva was saying because it was a very advanced level. The others had an advanced student who would give a, a, a shiur chazara. He would go and give another shiur after to tell us what he what the Rosh Yeshiva just said, right? So the Meturgeman has to be an advanced student in order to do that. Okay, and anyway, he said, this Meturgeman himself taught something important. Kehot, one who looks at these three things, stares at these three things, the person's eyes will grow dim. The three things are a rainbow, the nasi, and a kohen. Keshet, this pasuk that we just quoted, that there is a similarity between the brightness and uh, the colors of the of a rainbow and the the image that Yechezkel um, saw in Maaseh Merkava. So staring at it is you know uh, uh, exploring too much into Maaseh Merkava. Nasi dechtiv natata mehodecha alav regarding Moshe and Yehoshua. Hashem says I'm going to give some of the glory your glory onto Yehoshua and um, and uh, uh, Moshe. Right? Remember they didn't look at his face because so even though because uh, Moshe who God passed by him, right? And just that passing by uh, gave him divine presence. And so uh, the Nasi, and so that applies to Moshe. And then that transferred also to Yoshua. And so too, Moshe and Yoshua were the equivalent of the Nisi'im. They were the, the highest uh, position of leadership in Israel. And so too, any Nasi, you know, like Lehavdil, if you would see the Queen of England, stare at stare at her face, it would not be respectful, right? You kind of glance, look down, and uh, so too, out of respect, um, just being in, a, in that position of leadership over the Jewish people grants a person um, a, 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 a sense of divinity. Um, and also someone who looks at the Kohanim when the Beit HaMikdash was uh, up and they're doing Birkat Kohanim, so, and they're using God's explicit name. So when they were blessing the people with God's name, so then that divide the Shekhinah 
flows through their hands. And so to look at their hands would be a violation of uh, looking too much uh, at God's presence, and uh, therefore the person's hands would grow dim. And uh, that's why, uh, although today we, we're not in Bet Mikdash and we don't use Shema uh, Meforash, nevertheless the Kohanim cover their hands with a talit uh, in uh, order because uh, still, still something, still something special. One should be concentrating on the contents of the of the beracha and uh, not uh, staring at their um, at their hands. And again, another statement by the same uh, the loudspeaker interpreter. He's explaining another pasuk in Micha that says, "Do not trust in a companion. Do not put your trust." Here they translate in an intimate friend. Um, Aluf could also mean a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a general, someone who, a human being who you think is important. Uh, don't trust them. Even a friend, their friends today, uh, you know, a, a rainy day friends sometimes. Okay, that's the simple meaning. But he says, do not trust, he's reading not Bereya as friend, but rather Bera. Uh, do not trust the evil inclination. Uh, when, the, when it says, Sin, it's okay. God is very forgiving, right? And he'll be okay with you. No, don't don't believe that. So how are we reading it? Altaminu Bedeya and Ra Ela Yesarhara. So read it Bera is referring to Yesarhara. Kishanemar Kyesed Levha Adam Ra. It's our as our own internal inclination that uh, induces us, uh, tries to convince us to do bad. Ben Aluf Ella Kadosh Purush Nemar Aluf Ne Urai. At uh, says, right, you are my my aluf, you are my friend or my uh, leader from uh, birth, uh, referring to Hashem. And so when when the evil inclination says to sin, right, uh, don't believe him. Be when he says ba'aluf that the that Hashem will be forgiving. It's not true, right? Hashem will not be forgiving for someone who just uh, uh, sins. Uh, for thinking that, oh, God doesn't care. So it relates to the similar idea before of someone sinning in private. Okay, now, Shema Tomar Mimeribi, and maybe you'll ask a question, who's going to testify? After all, you know, if uh, if you do, even if you do a crime, but no one is there to see it, there's no witnesses, uh, human court cannot uh, bring you to justice. And so, uh, so to hear, right? Person will say, I'm doing it in private. There's no witnesses. Uh, there are witnesses, and here's a few of them. The very stones of your house, you think you're in private, but the stones are there, the beams are there, right? Those hidden cameras everywhere. Uh, the stones shall cry out of the wall, the beams of the timber shall answer, and they will come before HaKadosh Baruch and says, we were there, we saw. That a person's own soul, your own conscience, uh, will testify against you. As it says, guard the doors of your mouth from she who lies in your bosom. What does that mean? What lies in a person's bosom? It's his soul that's inside us. And so um, guard the doors of your mouth because your soul knows what you're what you're saying, what you're thinking, 
and that would they, their soul, your own soul will be uh, will testify against you. Yes, this is always everyone has two guardian angels that follow them around, and uh, they will be the ones that will testify against the person, as the Pasuk says. Uh, he will command his angels over you to guard you. They're there to guard you. But if you do something wrong, right, it could be the guards will be the ones that will be the uh, the witnesses. Last opinion is that a person's own limbs will testify against them, as it says. And Yeshaya, you are my witnesses, and uh, that, and I am God. The simple reading is that we, Hashem, needs us to be uh, to testify that He is one God, because we, Bnei Israel, are chosen to uh, uh, to um, uh, inspire and teach the world about monotheism. So Hashem needs us to be our to be uh, to testify. But that we also learn from this Dirasha that if each individual is a is uh, can testify against himself, his own limbs of his body. He said, "Well, say right." The arms will say, "I saw the legs uh, do that," and so on. Okay, and so that is a conclusion of uh, being careful to do things even in secret, including uh, the secret teachings that we mentioned there. And now the next Mishnah, very important. Um, because we learn here um, the, about the Zugot. These are the generations of sages, the earliest, uh, the early generations of sages uh, that uh, lived, lived and were active during the time of the Beit HaMikdash. So we read, Yosef ben Yo'ezer omesh shelo lismoch, Yosef ben Yochanan omer lismoch, Yoshu ben Perech omesh shelo lismoch, Nitaya beli omer lismoch, Pause here. Okay, this is a machloket. There's a breita that says in the early days before Betilan Bet Shamai, this was the only controversy that there was in Israel, but everything else. Everyone agreed, not that they necessarily agreed, but if they disagreed, they came to the Sanhedrin, they voted and they figured it out. Um, but this is the oldest uh, recorded, recorded long-standing controversy. So what was it about? It was about whether to do semicha or not. Oh, let's explain this. In general, when someone brings a korban, uh, the whoever's bringing it has to put their hands on the head of the uh, korban and say something. Like the Yukon Gadol on Yom Kippur, he's bringing a chatat offering, so he puts his hands and he says, vidui. If it's another kind of offering, the person will say, right, this represents me, and I bring this as uh, Thanksgiving, whatever, whatever it is. So that, in general, that is done. The question here is regarding Korban Chagiga that's brought on the holiday, and uh, it's supposed to be brought on Yom Tov. Now we have a problem because um, if you're uh, putting your hands, not just the hands, they would, as we're going to see, a person would put his entire weight on the animal uh, when, when doing semicha. Now putting your weight on an animal is prohibited on Shabbat and Yom Tov because you're not allowed to use an animal. You can't put a burden on it and you can't ride an animal. So therefore doing that just out of, uh, out of the context of a korban would be prohibited. And so here the question is, can one do that violation, right? Do that, um, uh, that action of using the animal on Yom Tov because it's necessary for the korban. So that's the machloket. So the Yosef ben Yo'ezer says, Shelo dismoch. Yosef ben Yochanan says, yes, you do semicha. Now, why would you say you do semicha? Well, that means that according to Yosef ben Yochanan, it's, 
doing semicha is a necessary part of the korban. So just like you can do shechita and everything else that otherwise are prohibited on Yom Tov um, and Shabbat, but if you need to do it for the uh, for the avodah, then that overrides. And also it assumes that you can't you couldn't have done it the day before. Uh, whereas Yosef ben Yoezed would say either that semicha is a good thing to do, but it's not absolutely necessary. Or he might say, yes, yeah, necessary, but you could do it the day before, right? Tomorrow I'm going to bring this, this korban and I'm doing semicha now. It doesn't have to be right before. Uh, but the ones who say you have to do semicha said, will say that, no, it has to be done right before, right before you're about to slaughter it. You do semicha and then you give it over uh, to, to the slaughterer. Okay, so that is the machloket. And we have these pairs, and it goes generation by generation. And the first three pairs is the first mentioned. Uh, we're going to see that this is the 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 first mentioned is the, is the nasi, uh, the highest the highest level of leadership. And the second one is abetin, which is the second to highest head of the court. So the highest always says shalolismoch more machmir, and the second one says ismoch, and then so that's true for the second generation and the third generation. And then the fourth generation, we have Shimon ben Shatach Omer Lismoch Shema. Um, sorry, uh, sorry. That's the third generation. Okay, now the fourth generation, Shemaya Omer Lismoch Avatalion Omer Shelo Lismoch. And now the order is switched, and the Shemaya that says yes. You should do semichav. Tayon says you shouldn't. And assuming that the first mentioned is the nasi, so it's not that the nasi is always the one that machmir, um, but they're always different. And now here they switch, and the nasi shemaya is the one who says uh, it's lenient. Yes, you can. Now hilel menachem lo nechleku. And the next generation was hilel and menachem, and they agreed. Hilel says you can do semicha. So that's one time they actually agreed, but that was short lived. Because Yasam Menachem, Menachem left, we'll see where he went. And Ichnas Shamai, Shamai came in his place, uh, presumably as the Abetin. And then they had Machloket again, because Shamai Omer Shilolismoch, Hidel Omer, Hidel Omer Lismoch. Shamai says, don't. And Hidel says, yes, you should. Although here Shamai is mentioned first. Uh, doesn't, uh, but Hillel was the Nasi, perhaps he mentioned first, just as a kind of parallelism to uh, the beginning, where the first one is always Shalodismoch, um, and also he just left, so we just mentioned Shammai, and Shammai came in, so since we're just still talking about Shammai, we mentioned Shammai, but in fact, Hillel was the Nasi, um, and then the Mishnah tells us, the first person mentioned, except for Hillel and Shammai, uh, was the Nasi, and the second person mentioned was the head of the Okay, uh, so very interesting and very important machloket that the that this is recorded. It's almost like you know we we needed this we need to have a machloket just to mention their names because you know if we didn't have a a, a machloket that they disagreed about why why would they why would we mention uh, who they were you know we remember the names of the chachamim because of things that they said like in Pirkei Avot uh, so um, uh, at least I guess it's good that they had one machloket so we know uh, who they were and what their position was. All right. Uh, so three of the first pair said not to do semicha, and two of the at last two generations uh, were in the Siim that said lismoch. So the Nasim himself, right, the first three Nasim said don't, the next two Nasim said yes. Uh, 
All that is according to the Bimeir. That's a simple, straightforward reading of the Mishnah. However, switch it around. See, according to the Bimeir, a quick tangent about Nitai Harbeli. Uh, there is no such thing as a name, a name of Nitai. Uh, if you look in the original manuscripts uh, of the Mishnah, the oldest manuscripts, his name is Matai Harbeli. Matai, like uh, English, Matthew, it's short for Matityahu. That was his name, Matai Harbeli. But the, the letters look uh, similar. If you take a mem and just uh, kind of split it apart, it turns into Nitai, and that's what made it into our printed editions. Okay, but I didn't mean to point to him. Actually, I meant to point to here, Yehuda uh, ben Tabai is mentioned first. So it seems that he is the Nasi and Shimon ben Shatach is the Abetin. However, do we say that's the only opinion of Bimeir? Chachamim say that's the other way around. Uh, not that they have a different version of the Mishnah or disagree with the Mishnah. Uh, they might say that Yudha ben Tabai, even though his Abetin is mentioned first, maybe for parallelism, because the whoever says Sheloli Smoch is mentioned first before. So maybe here also. So anyway, that's the controversy between Bimeir and Chachamim. Is Yudha ben Tabai the Nasi? That's what Bimeir says that. Whereas Bimeir say no. Yudah ben Tabai wasn't actually the Avbetin. Okay, so now we want to say okay. Now that we know that machloket, we're going to test it out. Mantana lehad tanura banan. Which of these two opinions, Bimeir and Chachamim, would agree would be the uh, would follow this the following baraita? Okay, we're going to quote a long baraita. It's a whole story, and only at the end. We'll see what the point of the question is. So let's file, let's file this b'raita. Amar Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai. Er ben Echamayim lo haragti ezomem. Yehuda ben Tabai, right? So one of, the, one of these pair. He said, may I see the consolation if I did not kill a, a conspiring witness? What he means is that may blessing come upon me, right? May, cons- may I see consolation for Yerushalayim because I did, in fact, uh, sentence and Ed Zomem to death. And I did a good thing by doing that. Not first of all, because if he's in fact an Ed Zomem, so he, he's deserving, he tried to do something bad. Uh, what is an Ed Zomem? Let's remember. Uh, this is not just uh, a witness that lies, right? That's just a regular lying witness. This is specifically about uh, one set of witnesses come and say, we saw this person murder in New York on Tuesday. And the second set of witnesses come and say, wait, on Tuesday, you weren't in New York. You were in Chicago with us. You, so you couldn't have been there. So they're not just lying. They would have no possibility of even being there to see. And the Torah says regarding Edim Zomin that you, they get a punishment, the punishment that they wanted to do to, to others, uh, whatever it is. If it was a monetary case, they would have to pay. If it's a capital punishment case, those false witnesses would get capital punishment. And so Yudha ben Tabai says, I did this. I killed them. Um, and he's especially proud of it because he did it in a case that there was a disagreement about between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, the Sadducees said, said that you only give a punishment to Edim Zomamin if the sentence was actually carried out. In other words, these uh, Edim Zomamin, they testified because of the testimony, the defendant was killed. And now we find out that they were Edim Zomamin, they weren't even there. 
in that case, they the Edim the, deserve capital punishment. But if the defendant was not yet killed, right, even if it's very close, but he was saved before, just in time, then you do not kill the Edim Zomin because they didn't actually do anything. It was like attempted, but you know nothing bad actually happened. So the Edim Zomin do not get punished. That was the opinion of the Sadducees. The Pharisees, however, uh, look at the word and say, Kasher Zamam, you have to punish, punish the, the Edim Zomin according to what they tried to do. Tried means only tried, but did not actually accomplish. So according to the Pharisees specifically, before the, it's after the sentencing, before the execution. Uh, there's not, it's not a very big window because uh, generally they would take the defendant straight from sentencing and go right out um, and uh, march to the uh, place where they would do the execution. If during that time, the second set of witnesses comes and says, hold it, stop, stop the execution. Uh, these people, they were with us in Chicago. It's in that case that you kill the Edim Zolamin, even though they didn't actually kill anyone. The, the defendant did not die. The Edim Zolamin tried. Oh, exactly, tried, even though they did not. Specifically, when they did not uh, accomplish their goal, that's when the Edim Zolamin were are killed. That's the case that happened. And Biudah ben Tabai was so happy that he was able to um, by the way, notice that in the Mishnah, they're never, ne- they don't have the title rabbi, right? Just Yehuda ben Tabai, uh, Shimon ben Shatach, because the title rabbi was not yet used until after the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed. The Ban Yochanan ben Zakai is probably the first person to have that title. Uh, during times of the Bet HaMikdash, they were uh, just called by their name, uh, because this is a period of, they were, they were Perushim, these were the Pharisees, and uh, didn't yet have that title. Uh, but in the Gemara, at least here in the print edition, does call them Rabbi Yehuda ben Tabai. Oh, that's a bit anachronistic. Okay, so he says, says I'm especially proud because I did this polemic and I was able to uh, accomplish something against the Sadducees, who were a powerful group. And so he was able to ex- actually execute them against the, against the Sadducees as showing that they were wrong. All right, so Yehuda ben Tabai is so happy about this, but Amalo Shimon ben Shatach, his colleague, well, we'll see, you know, is it higher colleague or lower colleague, says, Shimon ben Shatach says the opposite. May I see the consolation if you did not shed innocent blood. And what we're saying, you shed innocent blood. You should not have killed this person for a different reason altogether, because Hamim said that you do not punish Edim Zomamin uh, unless both of them were found to be Zomamin. If only one of the pair, you say, oh, one of you, you were with me in Chicago on that day, cannot have seen. But I don't know about the other one. If only one of them is Omin, then they, they do not get killed in a capital case. And they would not get lashes if it was a case of lashes. And they do not pay if it was a case of monetary um, uh, of money. And therefore, Yehuda ben, uh, ben Tabai, you think you did something so great because in your zeal to polemicize against the Sadducees, you uh, overlooked another law that only one of the witnesses was Edim Zomin, it was an Ed Zomim, and therefore you should not have a, a sentenced the person to death. Miyad, kibel lav Yehuda ben Tabai, she'eno more halacha ela, bifnei Shimon ben Shatach, Yehuda ben Tabai, realized his mistake, and he said, I am never going to give a halacha, give a halachic ruling, unless Shimon ben Shatach is there with me. 
what you see from here is that beforehand, Yehuda ben Tabai was would rule on his own. If rule on his own, that means Yehuda ben Tabai must have been the Nasi. That's this is going to be the source of the question. Okay, but it says from now on, I'm only going to be that way. If I make a mistake, you Shimon ben Shatach, you'll be there with me, and so you have to be there right in the court, sitting with me. Now we're just going to quote the rest of the story. Yehuda ben Tabai felt very guilty that he sentenced this person to capital punishment, um, and even though it was not deserved. It was not deserved. And so Yehuda ben Tabai would go and prostrate himself on the grave of that person uh, to you know, uh, show his grief. And a voice was heard. Whose voice? People hearing it thought, sound, it sounded like it was the voice of the victim who was the defendant who was killed in that case, who was crying out from the grave. Um, like, uh, you know, the, the cry of Hevel. Um, corrected them and said, no, me, that's my voice crying out of guilt that I killed an innocent man. And you'll, I can prove it because eventually, Yudah ben Tabai says, when I die, you'll see that you won't hear it anymore because it's my voice. Okay, incidentally to that end of the story, wait, how do you know that the, the voice stopped because it was Yudah ben Tabai's voice and he died? Maybe it was all along the victim, the defendant's voice. And now that Yudah ben Tabai died, he went into the world to come and he appeased uh, the, uh, the the person, the, the victim, and he said, I'm sorry. So that's why uh, the victim stopped crying. Or he brought him to the heavenly court and said, oh, do you know what he did to me? And he got his, he got what was uh, coming to him. He got his punishment for that. And that's why the victim stopped crying. So it's not necessarily proof of who was in fact uh, crying. And I guess the people around there sound, said, Thought that it didn't sound like Yudab ben Tabai's voice. Okay, whoever's voice was, was what it was. Now we get to the point of bringing this whole story. Maniha, who would be uh, the author of this paraita, or who uh, whose opinion would it follow? If it's Bimeir that Yudab ben Tabai was the nasi all along, now it makes sense why. He would give a halacha, the word bifne here doesn't mean the same as it did before. Here it means that since he's the nasi, Yudab ben Tabai would give a ruling even without Shimon ben Shatach in the courtroom. And the before means even in, in, in the presence of while, while he's alive. Because um, if uh, the nasi is, is alive and in, t- in, in town, in the, in the country, then he has to, you have to wait till he's present to preside over the court. And so if Yudha ben Tabai was uh, the Nasi, then that makes sense that he get, issued a ruling without Shimon ben Shatach there, because Shimon ben Shatach is lower. So Shimon ben Shatach might be down the block, but Yudha ben Tabai doesn't need him because he's the Nasi. But then it would make perfect sense that originally ben Tabai would give a ruling without Shimon ben Shatach. And he said, from now on, I change and I'm only going to do it if Shimon ben Shatach is in there in the court with me. But if Yudah ben Tabai was the Avbedin all along, Shimon ben Shatach Nasi, Avbedin b'fnei Nasi, Mimore Halacha, then Yudah ben Tabai would not have a right to issue a ruling without Shimon ben Shatach there, present, right? You're not allowed to do that. The Nasi has to be present, and you got to wait for him to come before 
uh, before you issue a ruling. And so he would have had to be there anyway. So therefore, you see, the story seems like it follows only uh, to be Meir, and it's a question to Rabbanan. And then we say, Lo, Mikey, Bela, love the Kamar, is Tarufed, Afilus Tarufenami, Lamis Tarifta. When he says, No, I accepted upon myself all along in the official court, his court, he uh, would make sure that uh, Shimon Ben Shatach was there. But here we're talking about to join in someone else's court, some lower court, somewhere else, who says, You know, hey, can you, Yudab uh, Tabai, can you come join us on our court? So even if he was only Babetin, he'll be permitted to join a lower court. Uh, without the Nasi there. Uh, but now he said, from now on, I see I made this terrible mistake. I'm not even going to join a lower court unless you are with me, Shimon ben Shatach. Okay, so where we resolve that. Now, in the, in the fourth generation, we read that Yasab Menachem Nichnas Shamay, Menachem left. Where'd he go? He went to evil ways. Same words that were used before regarding Acher. Uh, so he did, I don't know, he, uh, you know, he went off, went off the derech. Rava Ahmad, Yasala, Vodatamelech, Rava says, no, no, he went into politics. Uh, maybe that's the same, or maybe it's different. Okay, he, uh, he left, he left the, the rabbinate, he left being a judge, and, um, and so I went to work for the king. And we have a Baraita that says, in fact, yes, that Menachem went to, he got a job uh, working for the king, a minister or something, and with him left 80 pairs of students who were dressed in silk robes. It seems to be, you know, uh, 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 lamenting the fact that they were preferred uh, this high status of working for the king and left their Torah study. All right, in any case, he left, and that's why Shammai came in. Amarav Shemen bar Abba Amarav Yochanan Le'olam arteh shivut kala be'necha Sheres simicha ena ela mishum shivut Be'nechleku ba'gedolei hador Yochanan says something very important and he says, don't let a shivut be light in your eyes. Shivut means something that is not punishable by the Torah. In Tanedic sources, it means something that still could be de'oraita, but there's no punishment for it because it's not one of the thirty-nine melachot. And in the Bavli, it's categorized as something that is drabanan because it may come, it may lead to something else. Okay, so Rabbi Yochanan says, don't let it be light in your eyes. So people would say, oh, I'm gonna, only going to follow the things that are Torah law, punishable, but it's only a shivut. No, don't think that because after all, semicha, what's the problem of putting your hands on an animal? There's no punishment for that. It's not one of the thirty-nine melachot, right? So... Um, and uh, so the Biochanan would have thought of it that way as Deoraita, but no punishment. Uh, in the Bavli, they categorize it as just Derabanan, as a Gezerah. And so, Semicha, uh, although it's only a Shivut, but look how the Gedole Hador for five generations argued about this. This was like their major preoccupation. So you see how important it is to get it right. So, you know, whatever you decide, if it's do semicha or not, permitted or not, um, uh, take all, uh, anything that's a shivut seriously. All right, good point. Now, Pishita, we ask, of course, of course, again, a shivut, it's a, it's a law. Of course, you're going to take it seriously, whatever it is, even if it's the Rabbanan, of course, we're going to take everything seriously. Now we say, oh, no, shivut mitzvah is terichale. Yeah, but in this case, it's a shivut that I'm doing for a mitzvah, so it's easy to justify that I'm only doing a violation to Rabbanan, but I'm going to get a mitzvah out of it. No, even so, even if you think you're going to get a, get a mitzvah, if it's not allowed, you can't do it. 
Okay, Hanami Pishita, then we ask, but that also is obvious because if the, if the sages prohibited it, so you're not, you should, of course, you're not going to uh, violate it even for Misfah. The rabbi said, you're not going to do it. Why does he have to emphasize, uh, especially that this is uh, especially important? The answer is that Rabbi Yochanan wanted to reject the opinion that the Zugot were arguing about whether you need to do Semicha Meaning in Masechet Besa, this Machoket is described in different ways. One is the question, maybe you don't have to do Semicha at all for a Korban Chagiga. And so the opinions that say don't do Semichas because you don't have to do Semicha at all. And the people that say you do have to do Semicha, uh, you do Semicha even on Yom Tov because you have to do Semicha. If that would be the case, then it's not about the importance uh, of Shavut or not the importance of Shavut. The point, the question is just, can you do, do you have to even do Semicha or not? So he's rejecting that opinion. Rather, Kamash Malan Bishvut Hu De Pelige, he wants to say that according to everybody, you have to do Semicha on a Korban, on a Shelamim, on a Korban Chagiga in general. And so the only Machloket is, how important is Shavut? Is it so important that Shavuot, you have to take so seriously. You know what? Don't even do semicha on this day, right? Do it a different day. Uh, do it before. Or is Shavuot uh, prohibited, but it's because it's necessary. You have to do it then. For so fine, you do semicha then. But both would both opinions would agree that you have to do semicha. Question is, does it override Shavuot or not? And so you see that they were arguing not about the status of semicha, but the status of Shavuot. And so that that uh, brings home his point that don't let a shavuot be light in your eyes. That the rabbis were debating whether to push away semicha, which is necessary according to everyone, because of shavuot or not. So shavuot, either way, is very important. Um, and so therefore, learn from other cases of shavuot. Don't say ah, it's only a, it's only a light matter. I'm not going to take it seriously. Learn from here that you do take it seriously. Good. So we, we learn from this that when you do semicha, it's not just enough to just uh, uh, lean a little bit of your hands on the animal. You have to push down on it with all of your weight. Because if not, if you're not that you're putting your whole weight on it, then what melacha are you doing? You're not doing any melacha, so just put your hands on it. In other words, on Yom Tov, you can just rest your hand uh, on an animal. The only problem is making it a burden on the animal, making it hold uh, a burden or riding it, putting all your weight on it. So if it was just it was just resting the hand lightly, then no way nobody would have a problem. And therefore, we learned that the proper way to do semicha is with all of one's weight. Now we challenge that. Midrash says that when you go speak to B'nai Israel and they will do semicha. So here the word B'nai Israel is specific, meaning the sons and not the daughters. So men have to do semicha, but a woman who brings a korban, and a woman sometimes needs to bring a korban and can bring a voluntary korban, uh, she does not do semicha, need not do semicha. Okay, that's the... Um, that's the uh, first opinion. And now we have more about that. So Tanakamas says, no, not at all. But Abiyo said, they don't have to. 
but they can if they want to, right? Woman says, I want to do semicha, she may. And then we have a story. This is one time we had this calf. It was a peace offering, and we brought it to Ezrat Nashim. Ezrat Nashim is not the woman section. It's, that's the section that women can go up to and no further, but men went there too. Anyway, they brought their animal there, and the woman also did semicha on the animal in that place. So you see that they're permitted to do it. But he added, But the reason was not because they have to do it, um, but rather just to uh, give them uh, peace of mind. In other words, they wanted to do it. They don't have to. They're not actually fulfilling anything, uh, but to make them happy, right? So that they feel connected. So fine, you can do it if you want. Um, and so that's what he means by reshut is not actually a mitzvah, but they 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 may do it. Okay, now that's the end of the brayta. Here's the question: There's another uh, prohibition besides. Uh, putting your weight on an animal or on Yom Tov, even during the week, anytime, you're not allowed to use a Kodesh animal for work, right? You can't make it plow. You can't put a burden on it because it's holy. And so it cannot work. So that would now, that would be a problem of, if you have to do Semicha, then for sure it's permitted because you have to do Semicha. So it's not doing it for work. It's doing it because it's a Mitzvah. Now, if the, the, the women are not actually performing a Mitzvah and they don't have to do it and we're only, they only permitted them so that they would feel uh, happy that they were able to uh, engage in, uh, in, engage in this, uh, uh, and participate in the ritual. Well, just because, just to make them happy, are we going to violate a law and use a, 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 a sacred animal as a, and put a burden on it? That would not be right. So from here, we learn the opposite, that in order to do simicha, you don't have to put all your weight, you could just rest your hand lightly. And therefore, it doesn't, there's no prohibition. And that's the only reason that they might have allowed the woman to do it. So this is a question on Rami Bar Chama who said the opposite, and we answer, no, maybe actually you do need to have all your strength. But to the woman there, in that case, they, we, they told them, don't put all your strength, just uh, press lightly on it. Uh, but otherwise, um, uh, you know, in any other case, when men are doing it, they would have to put all of their weight. Wait a second, if that's true, then look at the language that he said when he said, not because that the mitzvah of semicha applies to nashim. Now, if they weren't, if they were only putting, if they have to, to order to do semicha, you have to put your hands, uh, uh, all your weight, and they weren't, they were only putting it lightly, then they weren't actually doing semicha Anyway, it's something that looks like semicha, but they weren't even doing it. So you wouldn't have to say, not because there is semicha banashim, right? They're not a semicha klal. He could have said, look, they're not really doing anything at all. They're just like kind of doing a make-believe by putting their hands lightly. And so that language sounds like they were actually doing 
the same ritual of Samicha with all their weight, the same as everybody else. No, in fact, they were putting it lightly. And when he said that, he meant to say uh, one and yet additional reason. He was just adding another reason. So he meant to say is that first of all, they're not actually doing Samicha because that's to be all one strength and they're not, they're doing it lightly. And another reason is that we want to we wanna please them so they're happy, they feel connected. And uh, But in fact, they were not putting all their strength on it. So it's a pretty fascinating case of, um, of uh, dealing with uh, a woman's participation in a ritual in the case when they don't have to and their participation could be a problem, but the rabbis uh, nevertheless wanted to do uh, something to, um, so that the woman would feel connected to the korban that they were bringing. All right, Amara Papa, Shema Amina Sedadin, Asurin. Okay, now a side point, literally a side point about using an animal from the side. So of course, uh, you're not allowed to put a burden on the back of an animal because that's the main way you do it. But about hanging a burden from the side, that's an unusual way of using it. So would that be permitted? Or not, so the Papa says we can learn from here that it's not permitted. Because if it would be permitted to uh, uh, use a, have a burden on the side of an animal, then you'd also would be allowed to do semicha from the side. This doesn't mean you're putting a hand on the side, but rather we're equating the animal's head with the side, just like its head is not a usual place that you put a burden on an animal. As same, it would have the same law as the sides. So if um, it were permitted to use an animal's sides, then it would also be permitted to put all your weight on his head. And so uh, since we say that it's a problem to use his head, so too it's a problem to use the sides of an animal. That's his conclusion that putting it on the side is prohibited. No question mark. However, the next generation, the fifth generation, and the sixth generation says, it disagrees. One can even say that the, the sides are permitted. The sides are permitted, but the head is different from the sides because the head is at the same level, the same height as the back. And so even though the head is an unusual way, you don't put burdens on an animal's head, but it's just continuous with its back. So all of that is prohibited. But in fact, it could be very well be that the sides are permitted. And so there is no proof from here that the sides would be prohibited. And so all these halachot uh, that uh, we learn from this famous mitzvah of semicha, and you get a little bit of the uh, taste of the kind of a, the um, a real, of, of reality, you know, these halachot coming to life with that story of the people actually bringing their korbanot to do semicha. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.